That's f***ing creepy. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, Scott Tranter. Scott is the former director of data science for Marco Rubio's run for president. He is also an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. Scott, it's great to see you. Happy number season to you. <laughs> number season it is. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the roundup is Matt Bennett. Matt is one of the co-founders of the center-left think tank Third Way and its executive vice president for public affairs. He earned his JD from UVA Law. He's a veteran of both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs at the Clinton White House. He also works with Lene Erickson, politicology fan favorite. Matt, welcome. It's great to see you again. Great to be here. On this week's Roundup, first... Biden's speech about the battle for the soul of the nation and Trump's incendiary rally, both in the same place. Next up, a federal judge in Florida granting Donald Trump's request for someone outside the Justice Department to review the documents they seized from Mar-a-Lago and effectively calling a timeout in the DOJ's investigation. Then we'll discuss the post-Labor Day sprint down the final stretch of midterm campaign season. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to take a close look at some lessons from Alaska's special election and how ranked choice voting might be able to slow down extremist candidates. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, Politicology Plus is where you can get our private ad-free version of the podcast, plus additional strategy and analysis we don't publish anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. Last Thursday, President Joe Biden addressed the nation from Independence Hall in Philadelphia, addressing what the White House called, quote, the continued battle for the soul of the nation, quote. Biden spent most of the speech taking aim at MAGA Republicans. And here is a clip of what he said. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear. Very clear up front, not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. And I believe it's my duty My duty to level with you, to tell the truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. They look at the mob that stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th, brutally attacking law enforcement, not as insurrectionists who placed a dagger at the throat of our democracy, but they look at them as patriots and they see their MAGA failure to stop a peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election as preparation for the 2022 and 2024 elections. That's why respected conservatives like Federal Circuit Court Judge Michael Ludwig has called 
Trump and the extreme MAGA Republicans quote a clear and present danger to our democracy. But while the threat to American democracy is real, I want to say as clearly as we can, we are not powerless in the face of these threats. We are not bystanders in this ongoing attack on democracy. There are far more Americans, far more Americans, from every, from every background and belief who reject the extreme MAGA ideology than those that accept it. All right. It's a long clip. I wanted to make sure we have enough substance to dig in here. Um, and uh, Matt, there's been a torrent of, um, let's just call them responses, uh, all over the map on this speech. And I've got thoughts. But before I do, I want to hear from both of you, just very broadly, what did you make of Biden's speech? We'll get into the Trump thing after this, but I want to I want to spend some time with this speech because I think it gets to the heart of what we spent a lot of time talking about on politicology. So, uh, Matt, tell us what you thought, and then Scott, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I thought it was a great speech and uh, very well delivered by a guy who sometimes delivers a good speech and sometimes doesn't. I thought in this case he did, and I thought. Uh, when Joe Biden talks about the soul of America and talks about th fundamental threats to our constitutional order, as he did mostly in that speech in Philadelphia, he is on extraordinarily solid ground. It's both true, it's deeply resonant for him, and I think it works. Uh, the one thing I would have changed is, he, and we heard it in the middle of that clip, is he dropped in a few things that are not about attacking democracy and that you can believe in good faith without uh, believing in the MAGA uh, big lie. So you certainly can believe that the Dobbs decision on abortion rights was correctly decided and not be a MAGA Republican. Um, and you could even believe if your faith or your, or your uh, values point you that way, that it you know, gay marriage uh, shouldn't be a thing in the United States. These are not positions that I hold at all, and I find them abhorrent, but I also don't think they necessarily uh, line up with, with the big, big lie. So I would have taken that section out, but other than that, I thought it was very strong. Scott? Yeah, so, I, and I guess I, I watch a lot of news, but when I saw this, if I know we're on audio, but the meme of where no one, blank, and then this Joe Biden speech comes up. I, I wasn't sure. We'll get into the substance in a second, but I was like, okay, well, why are we talking about this now? I, I, you know, it, did something happen this week in the January 6th committee? It just seemed out of nowhere. The speech seemed good. He seemed, you know, with it. I mean, if there's one thing to look at it, it's like, okay, everyone says he's getting old and he doesn't do interviews. That was a pretty powerful speech. And he seemed to have his, you know, his, his mind about him. Um, but it seemed to be, um, and we'll we'll see some polling out of it, I'm sure, in a week or so. Um, the fundraising has certainly happened. Um, you know what what the purpose of it was? Was it to rally the base? Was it you know to to talk about Donald Trump? Which you know I, I it just seemed a little out of left field. I was like, oh okay, so why are we talking about this today? Yeah, there's also we should note the visual, which we're not going to spend much time on unless unless you want to. But visual is horrible. The visual is uh, <laughs> different to be sure. The first image I thought was like. Oh, that's so dark and foreboding. What's with so, the red and black? Yeah, somebody said they yeah. really leaned into dark branded on this one. But um, okay, so here, here, here were here are my thoughts, and I'd love to have you know both of you respond to this because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, and first and foremost, uh, he is a hundred percent right on the merits, uh, and and the 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 characterization of MAGA MAGA Republicans, the Republican Party being captured and driven by by this force, all of it, 100% right on the merits. And I just want to raise a glass to the speechwriters on that. However, I envision these speechwriters sitting around in a bullpen writing this stuff. And, and and like, they've had too many beers at one point, and then they sort of veer off and they're like, well, but let's put in all the policy stuff too. And this is, Matt, you mentioned this, this is the, this is the, one of the bigger problems. Um, I have, and Jonah Jonah Goldberg made this point really well. Um, uh, but the, the, what could have been, should have been, I think, a really high-minded speech about, you know, the state of the country, the threats to democracy, the thing that holds all of this together and allows us to be Americans and have these debates in the first place. Uh, it could have been really unifying, which is what he kept saying he was trying to do: unify. 
Um, and instead, he kind of connected um, his policy agenda to democracy. And if you are with us on democracy, basically, you got to be a Democrat. You got to vote for Democrats. And that was, I think, a big um, mistake. Didn't sit well with me, um, you know, melding the partisan agenda um, with, with this sort of existential threat. Um, and I think politically, it might have been a misstep to the extent it uh, makes life harder for the Democrats in really close House races who are trying to peel off Republicans, They're trying to move them toward voting for a Democrat when the leader of their party is is uh, is going so hard at, at them in this way. Um, and then the other thing I thought of, uh, I haven't seen a ton of people talk about this, but it, it just the the you know when you go so hard, and he's again he's right on the merits at MAGA Republicans. Uh, while in the background, Democrats have just executed this coordinated strategy to spend a ton of money boosting MAGA candidates in primaries. That is um, that is just some profound cynicism, and I didn't I didn't like that. Um, so so that's so again, right on the merits. Just wish it had been really clean and just about democracy and about the threats. And guess what? Everybody else can make up their own minds about what to do after that because it's pretty obvious. So. That was my read. Um, Matt, tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't disagree. I think that he had a really strong case to make on democracy, and I think he made the case on democracy very well. Um, and I think mixing in the the more partisan stuff, which is to say the partisan policy agenda, um, I think might have been a mistake. On the other hand, politically, I'm not sure it's going to hurt anybody, you know, Abigail Spamberger isn't lying awake at night wondering if if Joe Biden has pissed off MAGA Republicans in the seventh district of Virginia, because if you're a MAGA Republican, you ain't voting for Abigail Spamberger. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I, I don't know that it will have any kind of profound impact that way. I don't know how you could get the Republican base any more fired up than they are already. So I don't particularly worry about that. And, uh, you know, I do think that it is important for the president to keep pointing at this incredibly vital thing happening in the country, which is that there is an assault on our democracy by the leader of a major political party. And that has to be called out over and over and over. Totally agree. Um, Scott, uh, do you think that he made the distinction uh, sufficiently between MAGA Republicans and Republicans um, that he, he says, I, you know, I've been able to work with these guys. How do you think the Republican um, electorate is going to hear this? Do we have any numbers on the way it's being, um, you know, the way it's being interpreted? Well, there are two ways, I guess I would look at numbers. One is I, I, I will be waiting until October 15th when we can see what the fundraising looked mm. like um, four or five days after this. Um, because leading into this, I think we're going to talk about it later is, you know, the, the senatorial fundraising, the RNC fundraising has been horrible. This just gave them lots of text messages, lots of emails, like they're going to raise money off of this. The only question is how much. So we'll, we'll get to see those numbers here in about a month. The polling numbers, um, you know, we'll, we'll see some cross tabs and things like that. But I think the money is, is where it was. There wasn't a whole lot of Joe Biden content. The gas was coming down. Jobs were mixed at worst good at better, like, you know, it seemed to be getting better. And all of a sudden now you've got these visuals of, you know, Joe Biden, black and red and screaming at Republicans. If you watch the entire speech, my guess is most of the Republicans, you know, even if they are are on the MAGA side, probably said, well, that's not me. Those are the guys storming the Capitol. Um, but I don't think very many watched the entire speech. I mean, I get paid to do this and I didn't watch the entire speech until <laughs> afterwards and only because I get paid to do this. So like, it, it's one of those things. It's, it's, you know, if you watched it, you probably got the nuance, but we're not a society that gets nuanced. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, we'll see, I'm sure we'll see some cross tabs come out in the next week or so. I'm um, showing this, but, but I think it, the biggest shot in the arm for the Republicans is they're going to raise some money off of it. Yeah, the 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 reality of these things being consumed in sound bites on you know secondary and tertiary media products is is just the world we live in now. Same as the debates, like the value in a in a good debate performance is really in the in the minute clip that you can get, and then use it afterwards for fundraising, persuasion, et cetera. So that's I think that's a good good point. Most people aren't watching this live, and they're not watching it you know start to finish. Okay, let's look at. Uh, the Trump speech, because these were essentially dueling events in Pennsylvania. Donald Trump followed 
and, and, it, and it was his first public speech uh, since the Mar-a-Lago search. And um, uh, it was one of his signature rally speeches. Um, and this time he demonized the FBI and the federal magistrate who signed the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. He called FBI and the Justice Department vicious monsters. He called the search, uh, quote, one of the most shocking abuses of power by any administration in American history. I think he forgot the time he asked a foreign leader to dig up some dirt on a political opponent. But anyway, he also praised Chinese President Xi Jinping for, quote, ruling with an iron fist. This was the thing that, man, gave me just chills when I heard him say it. Here's the clip. Let me tell you, uh, unlike our leader, uh, they're at the top of their game. These are like central casting. There's nobody that could play the role in Hollywood. All of Hollywood, nobody can play the role of President Xi of China. Nobody could play the role. He's a fierce person. Putin, fierce, is smart. You know, a lot of times I'll say somebody's smart and the fake news will go, he called President Xi smart. He rules with an iron fist, 1.5 billion people. Yeah, I'd say he's smart. Wouldn't you say he's smart? (sighs) Just sit with that for a minute. That's fucking creepy and, and terrifying. And that, Matt, just to me, underscores exactly what Biden was talking about. He made his point for him. Um, and it, I, I just, it, it is, a, it's alarming to me that, um, that problem party seems to be just okay with this. There's no, no, no criticism, no, Xi Jinping rules with an iron fist. He's smart. That's like, as if that's what we should have. Um, that's the signal that he's saying. Uh, what, how did you read this? Well, a couple of things. One is uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan had a phrase, defining deviancy down. And in the case of Trump, we have defined deviancy down to the lowest possible level for Republicans, where, which is to say he can say anything and they just shrug, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. What are you getting all upset for? Then uh, Joe Biden makes the very accurate observation that uh, Trump is at the very least a semi-fascist and they clutch their pearls and and fall on their fainting couches. And it's obvious that he is he has fascist tendencies. He likes fascists. And Putin and she she's not a communist. She is a fascist. And and so it is very clear to me that uh, one, Trump gets a huge pass from basically everyone because he's so out there and over the top on everything that that nothing can be taken seriously. And two, that Republicans uh, are feigning the, you know, being upset when, in fact, they know that what Biden said is true. Scott, Bill Kristol, uh, who, who we know, you know, conservative uh, intellectual, tweeted that clip of Trump talking about she and said, seems kind of like a semi-fascist sentiment. And, and he's right. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if you can give us any insights into the degree to which, you know, labels like fascist or fascism even cut through and have any meaning among the MAGA base. And is there something about the education gap that we should uh, be aware of? Like, do these words actually carry any significance with um, with Trump supporters? You know, that's that's an interesting question. I don't think I've seen any public or private polling that kind of looks at the words, although this would, this would be one of the few times where I'd actually advocate for a, for a good focus group. Mm. Um, if I had to take my, my guess is the way you would pose this in a focus group is when you hear someone call a fascist, do you stop and think of how bad that is? And I would imagine everyone around the room would probably say, no, not really. They just, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's not something doesn't have the effect it probably did in a focus group in the 1960s. Yeah. Certainly Um, not when you're coming off the heels of the, you know, some of the evils of fascism. Yeah, yeah, and you know this is this is not quantitative or, or even remotely qualitative. I mean, I've you know when you watch MSNBC and you watch Fox, both guests throw the word fascist around about each. You know what I mean? Like it's it's pretty, it's 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 a pretty commonly used term. Um, and so I feel like everyone kind of just says, oh, someone else calling someone a fascist. So here we are. I, I think the more interesting thing about the Trump speeches, or at least that clip was, you know, it really kind of goes against the tough on China. Thing. Sure does. Um. 
you know, which which is interesting. And, and you know, there, there are a lot of clips like that from, you know, from Donald Trump where he says one thing and campaigns on another. I mean, this goes back to 2016. Um, but that's another one where, you know, if you were if 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 normal political gravity applied to him. There's a there's a ten million dollar ad campaign that would stop him from running for anything, right? Like imagine if Tom Cotton had said that, we wouldn't be talking about him running for president, you know. Or imagine if, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham said something like that, or or vice versa. Imagine if a Kamala Harris said something like that. I, I think you know, had had a different politician said this, and also had the tough on China mantra, that it wouldn't go as is the same way. So I, I think it's interesting. Man, we left the days of flip-flopping being an actual political sin long, <laughs> long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, on Monday, a federal judge called a timeout in the Justice Department's investigation into potential theft of documents by former President Donald Trump. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon granted Trump's request uh, for a special master, we talked about this last week, to review evidence recovered in the search of Mar-a-Lago. Her ruling also prevents DOJ's investigative team from accessing the thousands of documents. This was the thing we kind of made fun of last week, the week before. Hey, you know, Trump saying, all those things that I stole from you uh, that were not mine to begin with, I want them back, please, and please don't look at them. Per the order, the special master will review all of the seized material looking for documents that are covered by attorney-client privilege, which is a normal use uh, for a special master, but also for potential executive privilege concerns. And many of the questions about how the special master will operate have been left unanswered, uh, but she did instruct Trump's legal team and prosecutors to submit a joint filing on Friday uh, asking for proposed candidates for that position, what they would do, um, you know, how much they would get paid and how soon they should do it. Um, in her ruling, Cannon did write that the Supreme Court had not ruled out, quote, the possibility of a former president overcoming an incumbent president on executive privilege matters, end quote. Uh, she cited U.S. v. Nixon. Um, and and uh, this to me, you know, we almost didn't talk about this today because I was convinced this is a, in the rearview mirror, this is going to be a procedural blip because judges make bad decisions. This is bound to get appealed and I think bound to get overturned because it's just so bad. She didn't address, she didn't address the question of standing. She didn't address, um, she didn't resolve some major, major, uh, obvious questions. And I just can't see it holding. It should get overturned, but you know, uh, the, it's been lambasted by legal scholars and commentators, but so was his appeal to, to get the special master in the first place. So, Matt, I want you to sort of explain to people just how insane this ruling is. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's been it's been criticized by the legal community all over the place. Uh, and it seems like this is a judge who just issued a really bad ruling. Um, and it's not uncommon for judges to issue bad rulings. But can you lay out the checks built into the judicial system to account for errors uh, like this um, that, that judges make and what we should expect the course forward to look like for prosecutors? I will do my best. I haven't practiced law since 1997, but I will, I will endeavor to clarify Fair enough. Uh, a couple of things. One is um, apparently this judge, who of course was appointed by Trump and is very inexperienced, uh, does not know what a special master is or what a special master does. So she appointed a special master to do things that a special master cannot do. Um, and it, it, it's completely ridiculous. Like it doesn't fit at all. It's a square peg and like a round hole is the... So the the fundamental problem is that special masters are there to mostly to figure out if you, for example, if you raid a law firm, well, the special master has to figure out what in the raid, what documents that were taken could be attorney-client privileged documents. And there's probably a lot of them and, and somebody has to go through and sort them out. In this case, you're talking about material that is on the one hand, completely anodyne, like covers of magazines. And the other hand, the most precious national security materials that exist in the United States. The Post, the Washington Post has reported that there may be documents there 
that relay to very secret details about an, another country's nuclear secrets, which could not only uh, jeopardize those secrets, but could jeopardize our human intelligence that gather those secrets. So this stuff is so unbelievably sensitive that there is no special master that could do this. There, she can't appoint anyone with security clearance high enough to do it. The FBI agents themselves didn't have clearance to do it. Most people in the intelligence community don't have, have the clearance to do it. There's like a dozen people who do. And so uh, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, moreover, as you noted, the entire legal commentariat has said that she's an idiot. <laughs> I mean, if you've lost Bill Barr uh, and you're a Trump supporter, you've gone too far. And Bill Barr has made very clear that this is a ridiculous decision. So what will happen, I think, is that it will be appealed. And um, my hope is that the circuit court the appeals court will stay her ruling, which is to say, allow the Justice Department and the intelligence community to begin to to make their way through these documents so that they can figure out how bad the damage is. I mean, we could have spies whose lives are in danger right now. So the damage assessment is vital that that continue. Um, and then uh, ultimately, I think they will just throw out her ruling and get rid of the special master and, and allow the process to proceed. Yeah, at least that's what should happen. Um, we saw the judiciary get tested in 2020 and they passed. Trump brought a few dozen post-election lawsuits that all got taken down in court. Um, they were Trump-appointed judges many times ruling against him and for the law. Um, and this, this looks like the system is being tested again here. And so, you know, what, what does passing look like? Passing should look like exactly what you just described, right? Um, Scott, Across the board, uh, though, trust in the judiciary is dropping, has been dropping. From 2020 to 2021, there was about a 13-point drop uh, in America's confidence in the judiciary. Um, this, is a, this is a thing I watch with great, great concern. Um, Republican trust, trust dropped 23 points. Uh, Dems dropped 8 points. Independents dropped 12 points in that period. Um, and Republicans are still the most likely to support the court uh, at 61% compared to about half of Democrats and independents, which I think is interesting. But how do you read this, you know, this, this sharp decline in trust over the last several years? Um, correlated with the distrust in media, mm -hmm. um, which has been started earlier in that. And the distrust in media probably correlated with the distrust in Congress. Like, so in another lifetime, I worked in Congress, oh man, maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago. And it was always the running joke, you know, congressional approval was in like the low 20s, you know, um, and and stuff like that. And so we don't even, I mean, I'm, I know it's tracked again, but we don't even talk about that anymore because it's all, all low. And I think, you know, when you look at this over the last 20 years, no trust in Congress, no trust in the courts, no trust, or at least declining trust in all these different things, press media, all that kind of stuff. I think it's all correlated. And I think it kind of means something. I think the it's probably too much to look at the delta between 60 and 50 and say Republicans trust the courts more. It's better to look at the trend, um, especially yeah. given some of the cross tabs and things like always that. Always looking but for movement. Yeah, yeah. You're, uh, the movement's the big thing, right? Like, you know, and, and the big thing, not related, but look at movement. I think there was a poll Gallup had out the other day. We're now at 96% of Americans think interracial marriage is okay, whereas it was like 6% in 1950. So like, Movement happens. Social change happens. It just takes a little while. And I think, you know, look at it. Look at this over the last 20 years. It started in Congress. It probably started before Congress, but that's what pops in my head all the way to media, courts, law enforcement, et cetera. And it splits on party lines. There's one other thing uh, that I wanted to mention while we're on the topic of judiciary. Uh, Tuesday, there's a judge in New Mexico who removed a January 6th rioter um, and founder of the Cowboys for Trump. Um, uh, his name is Griffin. Uh, from his election, from his elected position as a as a county commissioner, for his role in the Capitol attack, this is all according to CNN. This is the first elected official to be removed from office for their participation uh, or support of the attack of the Capitol, um, and it's the first time a judge has ruled uh, used the word insurrection in a ruling about January sixth. And so, I wonder, um, Matt. With that as a backdrop, as we think about the role of these tests the judiciary is facing and is certainly going to continue facing, um, you know, especially as the investigation into both January 6th and, um, you know, Trump's 
assorted, you know, uh, commitments of malfeasance. How should we be thinking about what the criteria are for who's a good judge? Look, that's a very tough question. And I think what we're going to find is that we have an array of judges, both federal and state, who are going to be weighing in on incredibly consequential things relating to politics and to to Trump. Uh, And the reaction that they're going to get, to Scott's point, is going to be largely along partisan lines. So a state judge in Georgia ultimately is likely to have to rule on a number of things relating to the criminal actions, uh, the, the criminal cases that are uh, being built. Uh, it's not clear they'll be brought, but they're being built in Georgia. Uh, the same is true in New York. And then there's federal actions that are likely to be happening uh, against both Trump himself and his supporters, like the one you just described. So my fear is that the very thing that Scott described, which is the the loss of faith in the judiciary, along with a lot of other institutions in American life, uh, will will grow because it will what will happen is partisans on both sides will applaud or jeer at every ruling, and it will be a D versus R question on the court. And while we've had um, uh, ideological judges always, and and the ideological split on the Supreme Court has been a reality for a long time. We've never had it in a kind of purely partisan way before, and that's really dangerous. That is really dangerous. And I wonder, I'm sure you spend a lot of time thinking about this, or maybe you prefer not to, because it's kind of scary where it goes. If if that trend continues and it, you know, if if it uh you know, at a certain point, something ha- something breaks. I wonder what it does to social cohesion and essentially, you know, just behavior in general when it comes to uh you know the rule of law um when you have when you have a population that simply doesn't trust the courts to administer justice and when our concepts of justice become colored by uh your partisan affiliation i where does that go uh and how do we stop it sorry that's a big question but uh what can be done so I do have one idea. Okay. And the idea is that political leaders in the political branches need to respect the court and, and demonstrate good behavior. And I, I will say, and again, I'm showing my, my own predilections here, but um, I was standing right there when Al Gore conceded the presidency. And, um, and I, my friend Chris Lahane, his spokesman, got a page from him, which has now become famous. And it was... As soon as the Bush versus Gore decision came out, the page said, please do not trash the Supreme Court. And what Gore did that night was he said, the court has spoken. I do not agree, but I will respect the the judgment of the court because we are a nation of laws. And that was, in my view, the most patriotic thing I have ever witnessed. He believed he won that election. I believe still that he won that election. but uh, but he would not challenge a ruling of the Supreme Court, no matter how badly decided, no matter how, in retrospect, the critics have made clear that it was just a complete distortion of the law. It didn't matter. The court had spoken. And we need leaders like Al Gore um, if we're going to restore respect in the judiciary, because otherwise the signals that people are getting from their leaders are that anything goes. And that is really dangerous. Man, I would love to have just a candid chat with him about what that was like for him. That, man, I I totally agree with you. It's kind of the ultimate act of patriotism. Okay, let's pivot to the midterms. This past Monday was Labor Day. So that means we're officially in the traditional homestretch, the midterm elections. As the New York Times put it, the election, quote, is shaping up to be a referendum on which party is more to blame for a country that has decidedly not returned to normal, end quote. We've talked a lot about the different drivers in this election, uh, inflation, uh, Biden's low polling numbers, um, the redistricting has helped Republicans, the Dobbs decision, the recent legislation passing January 6th hearings have all accrued to the Democrats' benefit. Um, Scott, on a macro scale, can you help us understand how public opinion is trending now through the cycle? 
Well, I can speak to this. The, the Decision Desk HQ model, it's interesting This, if this actually happens this way, which we don't know if it will over the next 60 days, but if it happens, it'd be history-making. It looks like the Republicans are poised to win the House, and right now the Democrats have about a 65% chance of winning the Senate. That doesn't happen in a first-term president, you know, for the president's party. Um, 60 day, you know, 60 plus days, lock can change because 60 days ago we thought it was a lock for both. So a lot, a lot of things can move. But if that's the environment we're in, right, like that's what it is today, day or so after Labor Day, a few days after Labor Day, what what's going to move it forward? Well, I'm sure we'll talk about inflation and Biden and all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about the nuts and bolts, money, because that's that's what get these messages. You might have the best message in the world, but you know, there's a lot going on and voters need to hear it. And so I think the biggest story here is so let's look at the Senate side, the NRC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee. It's a bunch of articles over the last few days. Um, they've essentially run out of money. And this is, you know, money's a pretty easy thing to, to count and it's all public. And, you know, you can look past the press release. They've been pulling reservations. Um, TV by, been, TV by um, reservations. TV by reservations, fundraising. Then you've got all the uh, the anonymously sourced stories out of CNN, New York Times, Punchbowl, all those, you know, quoting those types of things. So there's 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 legitimately a problem there um, because you need money. There's a strong correlation between money and, and winning. And so if you don't have the money, you you may have some of the the, the policy issues, but but you're going to leave some on the table. And so I think that's important to note out. Let's do look at the issues. I mean, inflation is still a thing. It's probably not where we thought it was going to be two or three months ago. And that's a good thing. We're not talking about $10 gas on Labor Day weekend, which is what we were you know, thinking about three months ago. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing some layoffs in the economy and, and, and consumer confidence and things like that is, is, is certainly stabilized a little bit, but it's, it's, it's still not where it was say 18 months ago. And so I think the environment's a little bit better for the Democrats, um, at the moment. Um, and the Republicans need to make up some serious, serious ground on the fundraising. Um, but as far as issue goes right now, it's, you know, this week, it is the Joe Biden speech. I mean, his speech, is the talk of politics this week. And that's, you know, it fires up some Republicans and I'm sure it fires up some Democrats, but there is no of these, these, these middle issues where some of the independents can fight over. I mean, we can certainly talk about the Mar-a-Lago stuff and all that kind of thing, but that's inside baseball. That, that's not something what your average voter in say Ohio is thinking about when a, in a, in a key battleground. No, that's fundraising fodder. That's what that is. And, yes. and we should know yeah. while we're talking about money, the reason, a big reason that the money isn't flown in the NRC is because it's flown into Trump and his, in his, in his coffers and he's not spending it helping Republican candidates. He's spending it on his legal bills and God knows what else. Um, the, the low dollar fundraising. We talked about this last week. Actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because there's a huge contrast between, uh, between, I, I I explained last week how grassroots fundraising is now like the 800 pound gorilla in every campaign. The traditional, you know, high dollar fundraisers they they just they don't carry as much swagger as they used to because they don't bring in as much money as the as the grassroots um, fundraising operations do. That's true both on the left and on the right. However, the big distinction between the left and the right is that grassroots money on the right is all locked up by Trump. He sucks it all in in order to raise money. You have to invoke his name, defending him, fighting for him, whatever, right? That's that's the, you need really fiery pro-Trump rhetoric in order to get those grassroots donations in. He obviously uh, dominates that market, and the rest of Republicans really struggle to do that. Um, so, but whereas on the Democratic side, you don't have uh, a single you know cult of personality that dominates. The, the grassroots fundraising operation. Democrats tend to give a lot more to specific interests and and uh, and policy areas that they that they really like. Uh, Matt, am I getting that right? Hundred uh, percent. I you know I would say the folks on the kind of fiery left tend to raise a little more. So in a presidential primary, for example, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to raise more than Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar uh, online, uh, but. You are correct that for the most part, Democratic online donors are very pragmatic in their giving. So, for example, um, Heidi Heitkamp, who was a very moderate member uh, when she was running both uh, when she won her Senate seat and then when she she lost, she raised tons of money online in part because she voted against Brett Kavanaugh and, you know, the money just rolled in. And um so voters said, I like what you did on the Supreme Court vote. I'm not going to worry so much about what you've done in the other six years. <laughs> and so I'm giving you money. And and it wasn't about her. It was about uh, getting an outcome. And that's very different than the Republicans are facing. 
going back to numbers, on Tuesday, uh, Amy Walter at Cook Political Report, um, a terrific, terrific publication, wrote an article about how uh, Democrats are winning the meh voter. Um, this is from a Pew survey. Uh, 37% of voters said they strongly or somewhat approve of the job Biden was doing in office. Unsurprisingly, the majority, 93% of strongly approve, 86% of somewhat approve, are planning to vote for Democrats this fall. Among the 43% of voters who gave Biden a very unfavorable mark, uh, 82% of them are planning to vote for Republicans. Here's where it gets really interesting, Scott. Among the 17% of voters who somewhat disapprove of Biden's job performance, 43% say they're going to vote for Democrats versus 29% who say they'll vote for Republicans. And that number is higher than in the last five midterm election cycles. So like to put it in perspective, 2010, uh, 16% of voters were in the somewhat disapprovers camp. 55% of them said they were going to vote for Republicans and 29 uh, for Democrats. So what do you make of that um, That sort of departure, that that contradiction? What do you make of those numbers? So I'm going to try and link it to something we were talking about earlier. Okay. Everyone's distrusting the government and everything else. Like what's interesting to me is when I started in politics is they always said, man, if your approval ratings are underwater, you can't win. Right. And what did Obama approve in 12 and what did Trump approve in 16 and what did Biden approve, you know, disprove or approve in 2020? Like, you know, the new political gravity is you don't have to have approval rating above 50. Right. And let's think it back to every voter who goes in is like, man, I, you know, I don't really like this guy, but I like this guy better than the other guy. Right. Like you, you can trace that back to, um, you know, Republicans voting for um, or I'm sorry, Democrats voting for Barack Obama in 2008 over Hillary Clinton and, and all those other things. And obviously Donald Trump and all the other stuff in, in, in the mid 2020s. So this is a long way of me saying is that's an interesting trend. And when we talk about the swing voter, that's who we're talking about. Um, you know, the, the voter who kind of comes in is like, I don't really like anybody. I don't even really like this guy, but I like this guy a little bit better than the other guy, right? The, the new swing voter isn't picking on issues. The swing voter is picking on the guy they the, the guy or the or, or the woman they, they dislike the least. Um, and I think that's kind of going to be the new trend going forward. So basically, this makes a whole lot more sense in the context of negative partisanship being the primary driver of turnout. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which we've which we've talked I, I, about I, a lot. I, I negative partnership. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and let's negative partnership. What comes on it? Negative ads, right? Yeah. Like you know, if I can't say, I could talk good about myself, or I could talk shit about you, yeah. and you know. I, yeah. no, no voter says they like the negative ads, but then again, we watch Real Housewives and all the other other stuff out there. This stuff works, and yeah. we we like to dislike people. Yeah. Okay. Last last point on this uh, on on the midterms. Um, uh, also this week, Nate Silver at five thirty eight uh, and Dan Balls at the Washington Post wrote pieces about how the shadow of Trump could hurt Republicans in the midterms. Uh, the Post's headline was that Trump was turning the midterms from a referendum to a choice. Um, and I'm wondering if that is true, how would that shift in, uh, you know, shift the dynamic in these races? Because as we talked about before, listeners will be well aware, midterm races have always historically tended to be a referendum on the party in power. Um, if that's changing. If the dynamic is turning from a referendum to a, you know, A or B, uh, what changes in these races? And then Matt, I'd love to hear from you if if you if there are specific sort of campaign strategies, approaches in messaging that some of the some of the most competitive Democrats in these tough races are taking that are that's actually working, seems to be working. Scott? The Dan Balls piece, it's an interesting thing, right? You can there's two narratives going on about what's going on with the Republican, you know, candidate, or at least the midterms now is the Republicans should win, but they elected, you know, bad candidates. Or there's the narrative you just described. This is a referendum on 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 something. So one is very specific and one's very broad based. Um, you know, the data shows, um, at least the, I would argue the data shows that this is more of a candidates based um, problem for the Republicans than anything else. And here's the reason why the generic ballot average is still Republican plus Republican. So generically speaking, the voters want a Republican. Yet when you look at specific races like in Ohio, Arizona, um, Georgia, um, uh, Pennsylvania, the Republican candidate is, you know, in some case, depending on what poll you're looking, what average you're looking, they're either behind or tied or certainly closer than they should be in places like Ohio. And so I think that that that's kind of where we're at is the, the generic Republican ballot. It's where it should be. 
it's historically on point. You know, it's it's the opposite of the of the president's party. Um, but when you when you look down at the individual races, because the generic ballot does not elect people, um, it, it's it's not there. So I, I this is a long way of me saying is I don't necessarily agree it's a referendum. I think this is more more of a, to quote Mitch McConnell, candidates matter. <laughs> Candidate quality um, matters a lot. That, the best. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know they still got sixty days. Some of these candidates, I don't think, are as bad as as they say they are. But you know, it doesn't matter how bad or bad or good you are. Just ask Mitt Romney. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. Yeah. Um, it, it matters how you're perceived. Yeah. So, <laughs> Matt, uh, what do you think? And some uh, sort of some highlights of the best stuff you're seeing from uh, uh, Democratic candidates as they campaign right now. A uh, couple that are obvious. One is uh, Fetterman's campaign. John Fetterman's campaign against Mehmet Oz is has been a just a, a clinic in how to do negative campaigning. It's so much, he so has, fun to watch. Right, it's it's hilarious and awesome, and he's blessed with a fantastic opponent who basically isn't from Pennsylvania and is a rich guy and is super out of touch and has no idea how to do politics. Um, so all of that was easy, but they've executed against it brilliantly, and they. What they have done uh, to to um, do negative partisanship best, you need to put your opponent in the out group, and in this case, the out group is New Jersey, Jersey, <laughs> uh, and you know they got him nominated to the Jersey Hall of Fame, and they got Snooky involved, and it was fantastic. But also, the out group is very wealthy, out of touch people who have no idea, who you know talk about crudite and uh, live in mansions and don't have any clue how tough it is to live a middle-class life in Pennsylvania. So I think Fetterman's done that brilliantly. On the positive side, and he's done that pretty well too, but but the positive side is Tim Ryan is running a absolutely textbook race in Ohio. He learned a lot from Sherrod Brown, who won in a very tough state on the same ballot where our, our candidate lost the governor's race. Um, and he has, you know, always been about the dignity of work and the dignity of the middle class. But what Ryan has done especially well is taken the the wins that that the Democrats have had and that Biden has had and translated them into why that makes people's lives better in Ohio. Because Nobody gives a crap about, you know, a legislative victory. What they care about is, is this going to matter in my community? And Ryan is brilliant at boiling it down and saying, this is what's going to happen. We're going to build this plant in this county. It's going to employ this number of people. That's going to mean more diners and more car dealerships. And so I think those two guys are setting the standard for Democrats this cycle. I would also add on the Ryan front that because of what you just described, the way he's the way he's been able to do that so effectively, also gives him enough room to maneuver around some of the unpopular things that that like the student debt thing that he so deftly handled with his yes, response very. that is deeply unpopular with his constituency, his would be constituency, and and uh, and and uh, and he did it very reasonably but firmly, and I thought that was really really well done. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories moving this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Scott, what do you have for us? Um, fundraising numbers. You know, we talked about a little bit before is the end of the third quarter is October 1. By October 15th, we should have all the fundraising numbers in. Money is highly correlated with um, with uh, candidate outcome. Um, and the Republicans are behind right now, both in the committees and in key races like Ohio and 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 Pennsylvania. Um, you know, that is the big thing I'm watching. Polling's, polling is, is something we're watching. But here's another interesting stat. At this point in 2018, we had roughly 20 percent more public polls out there than we do today. So there are less Whoa. polls and we can talk about quality of polls, but there are less polls. Um, to look at and pour over um, this cycle than there was at you know back in 2018, which said something about what's going on. So you know, fundraising is really what I'm kind of keen on, especially as we get into October and the final months. I would never have guessed that. Shocking. Yeah, I know. I just looked that up because yeah. I was like, we were t- commenting about how few polls there were yeah. for some of these state ha- for some of these congressionals, and I was like, ah, I, I know what I got to look up today huh. for today's show. Wow. <laughs> All right, Matt, what are you watching? 
the culture wars. Uh, and I'm watching it from two sides One for Democrats. One is, are they going on offense effectively on things that we never thought would be good offensive culture war issues for us, abortion and guns, both of which are working for Democrats in huge ways uh, in, in very weird places like Texas. So, uh, which by the way, I'm not tremendously optimistic about winning in Texas, but but those issues work for us there. I'm not either. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm not optimistic about Texas either, but man, we got to give Beto props for the way he's oh, handling the God, guns. Issues. Like, this race. social media is just on fire. The way he's he's actually asking for the support of voters who like would never give him the time of day. It's just, it's really, really good. Go watch what he's doing. It is. And, and so I think uh, effectively wielding abortion and guns is vital. And then the other thing that is even less... Uh, more under the radar and, and just as important is fighting back when the attacks come on crime, immigration, trans kids, and CRT. Those are coming. They're already happening in some of these races. They're coming for sure in some of the other ones. And what we saw in 2020 was a lot of Democrats just ignored those attacks, thought they were stupid. They 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 just chose not to engage on those things when they were said, you know, when it was said he wants to defund the police. It was a lie, but if you don't refute the lie, people believe it. So I think Democrats better punch back and correct the record when, when those attacks come. And if they do, I think they can neutralize them. There's one story I'm watching, uh, which if your if you're, uh, information filter bubble skews left of center, you may not uh, have seen much about this yet, but um, the White House just hired John Podesta to oversee $370 billion in climate and energy spending. John Podesta is a political operator. If you haven't heard his name, I'm shocked at that, actually. Uh, he's a strategist. His brother, Tony Podesta, is currently, right now, today, a registered lobbyist for the Libyan government and the Chinese. That is Huawei, which is the U.S. government blacklisted company. Um, they, blacksl- they blacklisted Huawei as a potential national security threat, uh, which prevents them from buying semiconductors, which the U.S. desperately needs. Um Huawei has paid Podesta at least half a million dollars as of 2021. And I'm just going to leave it there. All right, gang. uh, Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we will talk about the special election in Alaska and what we can learn from that, uh, and the hope of uh, ranked choice voting, mitigating extremist candidates, where can everybody find you on the internet, Matt? Uh, I'm at Third Way Matt B on Twitter. And Scott? And I'm at S. Tranter on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. 